Hello, you're listening to Future Artifacts FM, a radio show hosted by Neve Schmidtke and Nina Davies. Earlier this year, several radio frequencies were discovered airing a collection of broadcasts. At first, they sounded like regular news stories and interviews. They felt familiar, but also not quite belonging to our present. Slowly, the listeners came to believe that what they were listening to did indeed belong to their world, just not their time. They were looking into the future through the mundane edges of radio recordings and public service announcements. While this material is still being meticulously studied by researchers in various universities and museums, your hosts have managed to gain access to this collection to air a selection of these broadcasts for you, our listeners. For full disclosure, we will not be sharing this collection with you, as this introduction is based on a fictional event. In this monthly broadcast, Future Artifacts FM, we will present speculative fiction pieces by artists and writers, followed by conversation with hosts Neve Schmidtke and Nina Davies. The programme will focus on fictional works intended for broadcast, such as radio plays or fictional interviews, to carve out a better understanding of the now by exploring various interpretations of the future. Okay. Welcome back to Future Artifacts FM. As per usual, I'm your host, Nina Davies. And Neve Schmidtke. We're really excited to bring you the second episode as part of our Het Hems The Couch collaboration. Uh, this time we're joined by B. Shu. And this is the first episode where we're looking at art works with a specific artist rather than the last one, which was a kind of group introduction to the topic of magic and technology. But today we're going to be doing a deep dive into B's practice and research and also into their work, Esse One. Welcome to the show, B. Thank you. How are you? Saturday morning vibes. But I don't know what that means. It varies from morning to morning. It depends on what you were doing Friday night. Exactly. <laughs> but I'm well. Thank you. Before we go much further, I'll read you out B's bio. Um, B Shu is a Chinese-British psychic worker experimenting with reality production using collaborative play, speculative fiction and therapeutic intervention. They design and means test integral post-anthropocene cosmologies with live participants and fellow accomplices. Often foregrounding blood magic, decolonized time and non-binary logic with an eco-gothic focus, their work engages with archetypal shadow and is informed by their training as an integrative transpersonal psychotherapist. A studio resident at London's HQI, B is a member of the Outside In, Inside Out Collective and completed the ninth alternative education program at Rupert Vilnius. They are the creatix of Ritual Laboratory Lunarchy 2.0 and have collaborated with Furtherfield Gallery, Omsk, Social Club and Ita Yoda with work selected for solo show Plague Space Arts of the Working Class, amongst others, and shows in Prague, Oslo, Sedisvjorda, Berlin, NYC, and Milan. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Happy to be here. Yeah, no, it's really great to have you on the show, B. We, B and I were on a residency together this summer, which also had quite magical and technological atmosphere. We were in Sedisvjorda for two weeks. When was the first time that you two met? On a Zoom call. Oh, like okay. two years ago. Okay. Yeah, yeah it was and a remote partnership before <laughs> it became <laughs> materialised. And so we're going to yeah. talk about it a bit, but you two were originally meant to go on a, is it, am I right in saying the Trans-Siberian Railway residency? Yeah, it was quite, it's kind of interesting on a radio show about speculative fiction because we spent about two years speculating about a train journey across Russia and Siberia, and then quite literally went on a uh, ferry journey to a country with no trains. Complete turn of a narrative and uh, speculative fiction that did not come to be. But you did go, oh no, you didn't go to Siberia in the end. But no. this but this work is kind of in some way kind of linked in some way to your thinking about, I guess we'll get, we'll get around to it later once we've once we listen to the work, but was this a project that you were envisaging working on during this residency? Yeah. yeah. The the genesis idea for what became ESSA One 
came about during the development and discussion process of the residency that Neve and I didn't go to Russia for. Great. The work is seven, around seven minutes. B, before we listen to it, do you have anything that you want to say about the work before? Yeah, I mean, the work, so the work was created as a site-specific work, and you could even say temporal-specific work in a sort of national park setting, particularly going through a sort of like landscape that's called the Devil's Canyon uh, in Saxony. And ideally, you'd be there, you'd be there listening to it just as you're about to descend into the Teufelsschlüchte. And ideally, on the other end of listening to this track, you'd then be sort of confronted with the other component of the entire work, which is called Essa Zero. And it's a sort of um, sculpture, but which inhabits the fiction as a ritualistic artifact. And obviously, you don't have those uh, available to you when you're listening to it. So perhaps be in an open space, uh, be in a position where you might have access to touching sort of uh, physical surroundings of a sort of organic nature um, and just be ready to sort of conjure up images intuitively based on what you hear as the track goes on. Before moving onwards into the work and to the rest of the episode, uh, there are themes of death and suicide uh, within the work and within the that might come up in the conversation. If these themes are uncomfortable for you, we will we'll see you next time. And here we go. How honoured I am to be on this journey with you. Do tread carefully as you descend into the Teufelsschlüchte. There may be sticky mud or murky waters as you pass through here. Your feet may slip as you clamber over the rocks. Take as much time as you need to adjust. Regardless, I am here with you and we are only getting closer. You might want to tune into your breath at this moment. Notice how the air leads into your lungs. How delicious does this air taste in the lining of your interiors? What stirs within you when you lap it up? I invite you to capture this landscape with your fingers to caress every surface, every crevice, every curve. Perhaps you are touching a lover that you adore. One slow, sensual adieu to our dearly soon-to-be-departed Earth. I want you to know that your trust in me is sacred. At no point in our work together will I ever take it for granted. We are the architects of our shared reality, and every synchronized step we take is precious. So breathe with me.
tune into the soles of your feet at this moment. Attune to the sensation of their contact with the floor. See how subtly your awareness can play out to any pressure points, any textures, your sense of balance and wholeness. There may be darkness in this canyon. Indeed, darkness has already pervaded us. But the thread of light that connects us will pull us into the realm of spirit. Chill and damp. I feel it too right now. But once we cross the threshold together, all our interminable sufferings will fall away like soft, crumbling moss on a windy hill. Some guidance for the coming encounter then. Soon we will all arrive at a clearing, following a wooden, human-made walkway. Follow your eye line up and around the knotted black roots extending towards the forest. I will lead us, as promised, to the portal. A small, delicate thing curled up at the apex of a triangle. The crotch of a tree just yonder. Yes, it was anthrax that claimed it. And at this juncture, it will be anthrax that envelops us in its arms with the care and comfort of a parent our inner children long for. When the moment is right, I will take my position by the portal. Watch my gestures and actions as a demonstration of what each of us will perform, one by one. First, I will breathe deeply. Welcome the dormant spores into my lungs. Let them bleed and bleed deliciously. Then I will caress the bones, stroke the fissures with the tenderness of a god-struck pilgrim. Finally, I will eat of the leaf that grows from the blessed soil, or else feed on another small token of that sacred plant material. After I move to one side, you are encouraged to follow my lead. Rest your weary limbs on the log stood before the portal. Breathe. Stroke. Feed. Cool. Welcome back. We hope you really enjoyed SO1. And now we're joined with B. We're going to be going into the work a bit more deeply. And as we mentioned, kind of giving a trigger warning before, there may be some questions which deal with death or with suicide to give you an advance notice of that. So please feel free to turn off now uh, if that's something you don't want to listen to. So cool. Many of your works act or exist in a post-anthropocentric world. For example, here we're in a deathly future at the perils of anthrax. What interested you about making a ritual about this kind of future? Like Maybe you can elaborate a bit around where your interest in anthrax started? Yeah, so I mean, this is happening in a speculative future fiction uh, or fictional future where 
there's a lot of sort of uh, assumptions that we're making that we, we, I have extrapolated out on and sort of bolted together in an almost sort of like Frankenstein type way. And in this future, I'm sort of assuming that migratory patterns of grazing mammals have been influenced by climate change. Whilst at the same time, an actual thing that's happening in the world already is that anthrax is thawing from the Siberian permafrost. And that anthrax has basically travelled via these altered migratory patterns sort of westward into East Germany. It's a pure sci-fi sort of setup, really, that has been brought about by my own morbid fascination with the phenomenon of soil anthrax reactivating. Now, this is something I found out about back in, like, 20... I want to say 2013, 2014. It was part of my sort of awakening to just how quickly the perils of climate catastrophe are going to be hitting us all in our lifetimes. And it's, you know, it's a very sort of potent image. The anthrax is reactivating or resurrecting, if you like, with the sort of re-emergence and thawing of its carcass hosts in the tundra, like the living dead, if you like. Uh, And it's continuing to sort of infect new living hosts that graze on the grasses in those areas. And like, I had this association with the pathogen being used as a modern bioweapon in you know recent past and also this kind of like general sense i had almost in the periphery of my mind about there being this like thrash metal band called anthrax as well so it's a very metal image even though i'm not that much of a metal listener there's a real aesthetic to it that felt morbidly appealing as i say uh, and the cdc the center for diseases and control Disease Control, Centre for Disease Control, regards uh, the bacteria that causes anthrax to be one of the most likely agents to be used in a biological attack. Um, And like going into that research, so much more came up, right? So I learned that anthrax actually promotes plant growth uh, in inoculated soil. And field studies have shown that grass can grow up to 45% taller when it's actually infected with it, Um, becomes more drought tolerant, becomes more luscious, um, all of which is to basically attract more mammals to come and graze on it and get infected, continue that cycle of inoculation. So sort of ritualistically speaking, if you like, it just strikes me that there's a sort of like toxic symbiosis that happens uh, between the pathogen and the sort of grasses. And it's almost this sort of devouring mother archetype which i think has a rich history in various sort of like spiritual traditions i mean it's almost like a distorted gaia image actually and you know in this fiction this mother archetype becomes instrumentalized opportunistically by the esser death cult to basically implement their own agenda okay when you describe it as being like a gaia can you can you maybe expand on that Mm, a bit more for sure i think gaia is a well used image to represent like mother earth it's not necessarily an image i really use very much uh, in my engagement with nature connection or uh eco anxieties or anything like that but i think there's something about this image i don't know if we if we go into this idea of earth more generally, and break it down into all these different sort of elemental components. Um, I guess I see human rituals as primarily responses to the environments of their time. Um, And when we're looking at, like, utilising elemental magic, um, this sort of distorted or devouring mother archetype can bring out a darker, more sort of eco-gothic approach or lens to engaging with earth in peril um so here with anthrax we're thinking about the sort of monstrosity of an anthropomorphized sentience or essence that i've attributed to this pathogen you know uh, it's more than human at the end of the day and we cannot like we can never truly understand its consciousness but here through the process of ritual which is obviously a very human engagement we've had to anthropomorphize it in order to imbue it with certain characteristics that can be engaged with magically or um, or even as a tool for you know human ends or human nefarious purposes so there's this sort of like strange marriage that's been created between this anthropomorphized entity and the sort of spiritually bypassed nature of this fictionalized human death cult in the fiction. And, you know, in the case of the setting of the ESSA universe, we have to acknowledge the accelerating entropic processes of, like, seemingly fixed elements on Earth 
during a time of ecological collapse. And, you know, maybe I'll talk more about that later yeah. as well. But that's interesting. I don't know. I was thinking about rituals that are centred around eco-anxiety. Do you think that there are sort of any contemporary rituals? Because, I mean, there's so many things. Like, rituals can mm. sort of be extended beyond a sort of, like, mystical fantasy world. You know, I remember hearing something about how sometimes our recycling doesn't actually get recycled. Quite often, yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, I don't want to be saying, like, don't recycle. I don't want to be doing some kind of, like, don't recycle because it doesn't get recycled thing. But, like, could something like that be a, a considered a, a sort of eco-anxiety ritual mm. or an eco-ritual? Because like, I imagine there's probably mm. loads, that, loads of things that we do that we don't really think about as ritualistic. I think the mm. idea of recycling as a collective ritual that we engage in to serve a particular sort of psychic function is super fascinating. I have a tendency to agree with you about like how little efficacy there might really be when it comes to like solving some of the bigger problems, mm. but I won't go down that route either. Suffice to say, mm. it's almost like recycling is a sort of like cleansing and purging ritual um, that I believe has a heritage in sort of like almost like a classical times. This idea that if there is a taboo that is held within a community or society structure, the thing that you can do to repent or absolve yourself from having anything to do with it is to go through a series of repetitive movements that are socially sanctioned to sim symbolically absolve you of the actual thing. So with mm -hmm. recycling, it feels like a very surface level reaction that obviously is to do with how we manage waste. That I think is probably more to do with wanting to turn away from some of the deeper, darker and less obviously resolvable issues when it comes to ecological breakdown than yeah. anything else. Because recycling can become an industry that people can be paid to do, whether as reducing your overall waste is, goes against that whole I must consume objects to be part of my society kind of thing, which especially in London, yeah. it's like I need to work in this kind of industry, which means I get a half hour lunch break. So I'm going to get a meal deal and then that's going to be waste that I'm going to throw away because mm -hmm. it's less time mm -hmm. than me working less hours and making lunch, like all those types of I guess when, yeah, maybe kind of hinting at like those underarching or underlying structures that cause climate breakdown or climate catastrophe that don't want to be addressed. But if we all recycle. Yeah, and also Sorry, that's yeah, my cynicism yeah, no, coming yeah, out. I think but, that, that also yeah. these are sort of like rituals that I guess, yeah, as I say, like kind of sort of contemporary and your, and your mm. work is kind of taking a, a few steps into the future into like a post-anthropocentric world. So it's not. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So right now our, I would say that our sort of eco- eco rituals are like very much tied up in capitalist rituals or totally. like it's sort of hybrid of rituals that we exist in right now whereas yours is kind of as you said yeah entropic but maybe we'll we'll get into that perhaps well i was just oh, wanted to say that whilst neve was talking i was suddenly thinking about like catholic indulgences and how you do the thing yeah. but then you go and absolve yourself with the help yeah. of uh well is it, a, is it a priest or is it a, a, a deacon i'm not sure you do the yeah. thing and then you absolve afterwards Probably by, you know, giving a donation to the church. So that you cleanse yourself so that you can go and do it again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The but consumption does not stop. The acts do not stop. The compulsions do not stop either. Yeah, which is also a bit like net zero emissions and kind of paying off your carbon emissions as well. So it feels like sale of indulgences in the Catholic Church mm -hmm. in the medieval era, not in... Maybe there's... I won't go into the church. That's the whole kettle of, kettle of fish. <laughs> Talking about Catholicism, I guess, or, or mm. I guess any sort of religious sort of rituals, this kind of leads into the next question slightly, if we consider r religion to be a sort of magical thing. Sure. Um, of course. Uh, depends which religion. Yeah, yeah, it depends. Um, mm. But yeah, a lot of magical practices rely on materials, whether that be a physical location, a form of talisman or the presence of another force within your body. How does this affect your intentions for the work? Yeah, so, okay, generally speaking, my work likes to use physical talismans or sort of like IRL locations to anchor a sort of virtual or imaginative fiction into, into reality in the general sense, as well as into the body of like a co-ritualist or a player or an accomplice. And I actually see this as a form of augmented reality that maybe is somewhat analogue in, in its approach it creates a liminal space between absolute truth and absolute fiction it becomes a potential and it leans into this idea that there is actually a continuum 
from different forms of reality and um, different shades or intensities of reality in between truth and fiction. Now, this particular audio work was intended as a companion piece to a site-specific sculpture, which I sort of mentioned earlier. The idea was that you sort of dark crawl or slither through this natural landmark in the Swiss Saxony National Park called the Teufelschluchte or Devil's Canyon. And the audio piece is like a walking meditation track. So players would like literally be stroking the moss on the rocks surrounding the path that they're sort of like trudging through as the voice in the track invites them to. And like sort of exploring the space itself before I even thought about making this piece was what gave me the desire to create a participatory work that would actually feel a bit evil. That's what the space sort of inspired me to do and also you know forcing me to engage with notions of sort of morality and influence within a post-anthropocenic context too now that summer and it was last summer that I created this work a group of us were like hiking through uh, what we casually refer to as the burnt forest which was like a forest that was devastated by wildfires on the border of like Czechia and East Germany and I was like searching for a water source which completely didn't exist it dried up and instead I stumbled upon this unidentified mammalian skeleton, which inspired the piece itself. It, it's the main component of Essa Zero. Um, and it con basically constitutes the ritual object sculpture within the world. Mm. Um, you, can, you can see it in the cover image for this episode. Indeed. And then like thinking about some, some of these sort of like elemental components that I've already flagged, you know, with like the burnt forest, the charred forest and the sort of evaporated water... I think there is this elemental magic and alchemical notion um, to how how this piece functions magically. Because, you know, underlying the sort of physical engagement I had that inspired the piece with the water and the wood, we also have this image of a thawed earth, you know, the melting permafrost from, an, you know, a, a sort of piece of science journalism that I'd picked up years and years before, which then created this idea of wanting to think about a speculative migratory pattern for this mammalian skeleton. And then even underneath all of that, you've got this notion of deep, a deep time alchemical process where compacted sunlight as a sort of uh, fire elemental, if you like, then gets combusted again as fossil fuels. And obviously that's the sort of bigger, deeper uh, theme that this entire work is predicated upon. So... This sort of like there's a speculative theory that originally came out of the cybernetic culture research unit or CCRU. Um, it's like it's called plutonics or the theory of geotrauma. More recently, like Reza Negarastari has written about it. And it basically like connects the present traumas of the human body with ancient like planetary collisions that formed the Earth delineating all the way back to then actually and you know obviously over eons terrestrial surfaces gradually cooled when all of this collisionary stuff settled down but there still remained like a molten core at the center of the earth uh, which has been sort of poetically described as being even hotter than the sun and then trauma is then sort of reframed as this impersonal ancient sort of iron-based phenomenon and obviously there's a sort of metal element there, according to Taoism as well, which can be accessed through regression, but regression being this like deeper pummeling into the earth to get further and further in deep time to like our ancient, ancient ancestral past. So I don't know. I mean, this is like a very sort of evocative image for me. It's something that I'm still working through now. Uh, in a theoretical basis, but I'm I'm thinking about this the reemergence of a more than human pathogen in the form of anthrax, almost representing a sort of like reenactment of something chthonic and traumatic within the record of more than human consciousness. It, you could think about it even in sort of Freudian terms as being a repetitive compulsion, but like on a planetary scale. I'm thinking about how anthrax can be dated back by the CDC to like 700 BC to Egypt and Mesopotamia and this idea that is it was actually the the thing that was responsible for the fifth biblical plague of Egypt the one that killed off all the cattle so yeah obvious apocalyptic associations there yeah yeah well, even as you talk about this deep time relationship of geotrauma in a way so thinking back to the first humans I recently heard this fact that said apparently in physics they've shown that particles have memories right and that every single particle that is within us was also within the original big bang that caused the creation of the planet so it's even there's also this tracing or this memory that extraplanetary 
Yeah, even, yeah, I guess because I've been doing a lot of research into like the timeline of the planet, these like 4.6 billion years-ish that the planet's been going and thinking about our relationship through time, through deep time, but then also, yeah, these biblical scale extinctions Mm -hmm. as well, which is also interesting in the present day because you have things like um, the extinction of mass amount of insect and bug populations. Yeah. Which right now is like, oh, you don't see a lot of bugs. Like the other day I spent five minutes looking at a centipede because I haven't seen one in like five years. Thinking about how this idea of a future where you have this dying off because of anthrax. There's actually these forms of dying off happening already. It's just not necessarily to humans, but to other species within the planet. Or let's say it's not to humans in like Europe and like the Western world. It's more so to humans in regions that are more affected by climate crises like Pakistan, for example. I'm kind of thinking that I want to add to that as well, thinking about scale, Mm -hmm. scale of life, scale of consciousness. I think there's a there's a sort of esoteric dimension to geotrauma, too, in that if we really think about like our heritage as being planetary it actually gives a lot of credence to a lot of i'd say like magical traditions that align deities with Mm. planetary bodies and you know astrology is going to be one of them but also you know classical canons of gods and goddesses and goddesses everything in between again it's that anthropomorphizing thing which is i think there's a tension for me about how useful that is as a obligatory magical framework or to what extent actually taking away that like tendency to anthropomorphize could actually be beneficial for new forms of magical practice in future. This is an interesting two different because uh, Neva also uses anthropomorphization, if that's a word, within your work. But obviously, I mean, you do it. You do it very knowingly. Not that we want to kind of sidetrack and talk about Neve's work, but I think no. it's interesting to it's interesting to kind of have two perspectives in here. Well, I think also ding what, ding ding. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to be in yeah, a conflict. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no. But I think I think there's I think there's a lot of what you're saying. As well in terms of, yeah, pigeonholing Mm. perspectives of the environment through the voice of a human or the perspective of kind of us as people rather than, yeah, the environment speaking for itself or like also maybe not needing to speak, just being allowed to exist like we don't necessarily, you know, if it doesn't want to communicate with us, that's that's fine, you know, Um, that doesn't mean that we don't need to respect or engage or care or be you know, engage in reciprocity or all those all those good things. Or try um, to understand communication in, in all of its various forms. Yeah. In Catherine Hales's book, Unthought, she talks about like so different levels of cognition. So mm. there's like the conscious the conscious mind and the cognitive non conscious. And then there was a there was a third one which I can't remember what it was called, but it's like a she basically talks about like how rocks think and how mountains think Mm. or how they process information Mm. and because she talks about how thinking is a way of processing information but that's what that's what thinking is and she has this great phrase Mm. of thinking not of it as being human and non-human but like cognitive and non-cognitive so it's not about consciousness which is like quite linked to kind of how a human brain will work but more so linked to this idea of cognition, so like how a plant might lean a certain way to grow towards the sun right. as being the same as how, you know, we might live in a certain place because it's close to our community. Almost. Well, it's like that thing yeah. of like the, the plant feels the sun on one side of side of it. And that's like the, so that's that a way leans. of thinking. So it processes yeah. it here and then it moves. It. I wanted to bring it back to the to the original question a bit because we've been talking a lot about materiality and yes, I guess that that question around also how you often use talismans or quite site-specific locations. Even when we were both in Sedisfjorda, you had a performance that was in this lake that was timed to Mm. the tides, that was timed to the um, certain meridian within the body and Mm -hmm. so forth. And And it was very much about being present in that location at that time with you. Yeah. And this is a very different scenario and it's something that we also pose to to Maya who's kind of the the digital curator for for the couch at large is a lot of magic is very is very material like ritual practice are often connected to kind of objects Mm. 
How does it feel knowing that this is going to be online somewhat contextless? I mean, obviously we're talking about it now and we're framing it, but, you know, someone could be on the train, someone could be in a forest, someone can be in the UK. There might be listeners who are out in Saxony in the Devil's Canyon, like listening to this. True, it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe how does that sit for you knowing that, like, let's say magical materiality has changed. Yeah, so it's, it was really interesting getting a sense from both of you prior to this conversation about like how you experienced the work when you accessed it purely in this sort of like online vacuum, if you like, decontextualized from the land and the time in which it was created and originally experienced. And I got a sense that it can just be used as a guided meditation that I think in that online space would rely a lot more on creative imagination to provide sort of other stimuli that would embellish the work uh, within the world. And something about creative imagination, because I sort of, I work with it a lot in my training as a transpersonal psychotherapist. My understanding is that that layer of the psyche, if you like, um, it sits between the sort of, the mind and the soul or the spirit almost as a sort of bridging device and it's where um, the intuition function really kicks in so you're going to be relying on that I guess quite a lot in order to really experience the work online uh, but that doesn't take away from the experience if anything I feel like the the listener will have to lean on their own inner symbolic framework a lot more to interpret what certain sort of key words, if you like, or key themes in the track mean. So what does ascension mean for you when the sort of narrator refers to it? And I think, Nina, you were like talking about like getting a sense of like being a spaceship or something. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) And, and, you know, then anthrax kind of gets thrown in like a bomb into the track at some point too. And you sort of have to decide or or even just associate without thinking on the sort of significance of that for you contextually, not forgetting that it was used during the anthrax attacks of 2001 uh, in our lifetimes. Now, like, we'll probably touch on this a bit more later, but like within the genre specific framework of horror, which I think is the genre that this particular work sits in, you also get to choose where this disembodied voice that you're hearing is coming from what its agenda is, what its machinations are, do you trust it? Um, You've presumably already submitted to its sort of meditative guidance by like breathing when it's told you to do so, maybe touching your surroundings. But at what point does cognitive dissonance set in? Because then, you know, what it's talking about becomes a lot more sort of fleshed out and sinister, I think, as the track goes on. And there's something here about like the toxic positivity of maybe some sort of like new age derivative industries and fandoms that then bring in ulterior positions once someone's been brought in initially by that sort of like mindfulness, neutral, life-affirming philosophy that draws them in. At least when I was listening to the work or as I've been listening to it, there's definitely that sense of when you start off, it's like, oh, this is a guided meditation. And Mm. the undertone of it feels a bit off. Right. But it's not, I mean, even the, the voice is clipped in certain sections, so it feels more technological in a way like Nina I think when we were first talking about it, you said oh it sounds quite almost robotic because it's like yeah. and then as as you go on it feels like the voice is almost grooming you towards accepting this yes death it's like oh actually the way to feel good is to be within this death cult and to kill myself yeah you know that's yeah. that's the main trigger warning here for everyone <laughs> but you know I You've mean nailed it, Neve. <laughs> yeah but it's quite yeah, it is very sinister. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Demonic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so shout out and credit to Marketa Skalkova, who did the sound design for this track. She was mm. another member of the collective, Outside In, Inside Out, in fact, that I created this work within. And the process of like bringing it together from the sort of narrative-driven vocal element of it to then, yeah, something much more atmospheric, with all those sinister grooming undertones that you've mentioned, wouldn't have happened without her. And there's something about actually separating the track from the sculpture, the Essa Zero. So taking it out of the context of the sort of holistic work, which could only exist in a in a moment in time and space, that actually depotentializes it 
in a way that makes me feel quite a lot of relief. Um, and I think I, I need to unpack what I mean by that. Like less sinister or less real? So it's about those different shades of reality, that continuum of reality that all of my work engages in. You know, if all of my work as sort of like reality production devices or experiments do exist somewhere on a gradient of fiction to truth, then this this work is a bit of an erroneous one in terms of the way that it represents a reality that I do not want to actually materialise uh, IRL. And I'm kind of playing with a different way of externalising something within with this work. I'm kind of playing with a sort of almost like a split-off, splinter, shadow realm timeline which engages with a few sort of like shadowy aspects of myself that I've been working on, have identified since my early 20s. There was a zealotry that came over me when I started freaking out about climate change. And it sort of coincided with my own sort of spiritual awakening, if you like. Got into lots of different spiritual thought frames, but also sort of like started dabbling with like chaos magic and other sort of like occult practices. Um, But all along was very sort of aware of my tendency to be a bit like overzealous about some of the things I was learning. You know, there was this like self-righteousness about the way I was when I was younger. And occasionally it comes with this sort of grandiosity. And I decided to distill those two aspects of myself and put them into this amplified, almost caricatured spectacle character of this like cult leader. The idea being that I would then sort of like confront these shadowy aspects by being able to see them, play with them, I suppose embody it within this quasi-LARP structure and see how its persona, its machinations would play out with, yeah, an audience of gathered participants who weren't necessarily warned beforehand that this was going to be the play that they were, like, enticed, seduced, groomed Mm. to come into. And actually, you know, it's an experiment in suggestibility as much as it is... uh, an extrapolation of what might happen based on real world conditions uh, in, in a sort of organic sense. Maybe if I can be quite cynical or even quite dark as well, I feel like there's also a certain element of language that's used around, let's say, climate policy in the present that also has, I, I mean, obviously it's not it's not calling you to, to kill yourself, but mm. there's a certain kind of language that says, oh, it's okay if, you know, we have another oil field because then, you know, we'll be safe for fuel and we'll have fuel security for like the next winters rather than talking about what that means on like a planetary scale in terms of like the amount of extra emissions, a kind of guidance or like a creating of, let's say, a safe framework for the viewer, the person listening to the news. And then the delivery of the sinister news is delivered in the same sympathetic tone So it's harder to distinguish between what's the thing that I'm actually supposed to be listening out for as a thing that could be very destructive, such as when you see politicians talk about climate policy and they're saying kind of like, you know, we all need to be really safe for the planet. We need to think about climate initiatives. We need to reduce, reuse, recycle, all these types of things. But then at the end, they drop information that's like, which is why we're granting access to these new oil fields or which is why we're investing in let's say uh mines in the global south to create renewable infrastructures Mm -hmm. and there's i guess i maybe see like almost a kinship or like a parodying of those kinds of voices Mm -hmm. like a like a safety in what the policy is Mm -hmm. rather than actually actively critiquing the policy Could this be a sort of observation about the increased dissociation between content and tone in a lot of public broadcasts or, you know, policy announcements? Well, I'm thinking even the amount of the amount of politicians that have intense amounts of public speaking training to deliver their messages as well. And also even your own training as a transpersonal psychotherapist as well. That kind of, you know, how do you create that safe space for someone to kind of talk about what's troubling them as well? And like using the skill set within within the work. And also, uh, I would say that like, you could extend that to even any kind of like legal language contracts that are meant mm. to kind of present some sort of maybe not in this exact example, yeah, yeah. but like policy language, which might be like legal language. It means that it has to have met a certain standard that has been agreed upon 
Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. like very casually being like, oh, we know we agree to these climate initiatives, but actually we're not doing them. But it's all said in the same tone. So you don't pick up on don't pick up on what actually the sinister part is, mm-hmm. which I guess maybe as I was listening to your work on the way in this morning, yeah. I was thinking about more so about this sense of being groomed into thinking, oh, no, this feels this is good. This feels OK. I'm just going to go with this. I'm going to be one of the sheep following the other sheep and so forth. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe the I know from speaking to Marquetta that the sort of like clipped, slightly robotic edge to the way that she edited my voice wasn't necessarily like intentionally created to have this effect but you could you you could go out on a limb and say that there's almost a sort of like bureaucratical tone mm. to the voice that you know makes it sound more like something that was artificially created to influence people you know I, i've mm. I've heard about like a lot of politicians in this country getting like neurolinguistic programming training and things like that. I don't know if that's actually real or not. Don't quote me on that. But um, yeah, observations have been made, let's say, between like the way that they speak in public, even like their body language and things like that. The work in Ritual was created from an anxiety around accelerating post-truthism and new age ideologies. And in your words, a climate devastation. I don't know why I said in your words. Obviously, we are experiencing, that makes it sound like, in your words, a climate devastation. <laughs> As is. <laughs> um, uh, basically, I was wondering whether you could expand a, a little bit more on this anxiety about, on the sort of post-truthism mm-hmm. and what role you think technology plays in this acceleration. Just because also that, that you know, the voice kind of, for me, it sounded so digital. Yeah. And I think about uh, deep fakes. Right. And, yeah. yeah. I really like that interpretation. You know, maybe I'll bring it into the law of the fiction. <laughs> yeah. well, well, you know, the law of the fiction as it stands is that, in essence, the members of this death cult are, they're folks that want to escape their material reality. And it is very devastating. Like, it's not clearly prescribed how many years in the future this whole thing is happening. But if it's post-anthropocenic, then it's going to be quite, quite far. I would refer to these folks as passive extinctionists in the way they have processed and decided to sort of handle their reality it's almost like a sort of new age spin on prepper culture but taking place in a time where it's far too late to actually prep and presumably like the real preppers are already several decades underground in their bunkers the really really crucial point within all of this is that these folks are spiritually bypassing or have spiritually bypassed Um, and this is something that happens when an individual is very dissociated, but sort of super activated and almost like manic from certain like magical delusions or otherwise. And this is actually something I've experienced before not so long ago. It's an amazing feeling. It's very sort of euphoric. And and it you could look at it through a sort of alchemical uh, framework as well, where you've undergone certain stages of like spiritual purification. And this happens on a day-to-day level, by the way. It's not something that you have to be like super, what's the word, like initiated in any sort of like occult practice to to do. It can just happen without you realising that it's happening to you. You manage to get to a state where you like, you have access to some sort of spiritual transcendence, but there's a sort of crash on the other side of it, which feels soul-destroying because you haven't managed to complete the alchemical cycle of actually bringing all of that wisdom back to the earth, back to your community, back into an embodied state of being. You just keep on dissociating further and further and further um, until actually you enter the, the realm of fantasy. And sort of this climate of devastation and extinction anxiety that is you know, played with, immersed into through the work, it can exacerbate dissociation on a civilizational level that will steer an individual away from being able to ground any more of that sort of spiritual wisdom into their material reality. And yeah, I mean, we've we've seen this kind of stuff play out in pretty well-known death cults over the past few decades, like, I don't know, Heaven's Gate, Solar Temple, and also like Jonestown as well there will be these sort of mass suicide events that are often designed to trigger some sort of ascendance into another planetary realm. But obviously there are so many more human machinations and power plays um, that completely pollute uh, something that would... I mean, I'm not even saying there's something... The the sort of ascendance itself is like a pure thing. But it's, yeah, it's like super complicated. But like, I think spiritual bypassing often also becomes like a mask for much more human uh much more sort of 
basic needs, desires, um, and manipulations that can happen, you know, under the cover of something that feels very sort of transcendent. I think in relation to the technology question, it's a truism now that reality prisms that exist between people or within an individual's mind have become much more diverse, fragmented and atomized than ever before, with a sort of divestment of trust and engagement from mainstream media platforms. And this allows fiction to extrapolate. Well, this fiction extrapolates that phenomenon even further. I think communicative capitalism especially has already put us into a sort of era of acceleration and greater dissociation from our bodies. And I don't really have, I don't know, I don't, I don't have an answer to that. I mean, you could argue that in some way, accepting that as a sort of baseline reality can somehow free us to, I don't know, work with the mediums, work with the forms to, I don't know, engage with the horror. I'm not sure. I mean, but like, what is the definition of technology as well? Because in, in ESSA, anthrax is used as a technology. And anthrax also uses like human meaning making as a technology to safeguard itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, followers of the ESSA cult, they do receive their instructions via their devices. Uh, but I would say like in creating the piece, the sort of medium was incidental. It was quite a DIY piece of work. I think most of my <laughs> works are, to be fair. I just like work with what I've got. So I've kind of left it in a slightly... In fact, very, very ambiguous realm to what extent the voice that you're hearing through listening to the meditation track is literally something that's been downloaded from another place, whether there is this sort of like digital ontological dimension to the cult leader uh, or whether some like many, many, I don't know, refractions um, and iterations of that voice have already happened disruptions even before it gets to the voice of the follower as you speaking and i mean you know we used to speak about this a lot when we first started the show but i guess it's sort of tailored off but this idea of the present day being something that's so riddled by the lack of being able to to trust the media or the politicians around you or so on and and fiction almost becoming a truer way of engaging with the world because it's stating itself almost. It's like, this is a fiction. It's stating itself. So it's almost like, oh, like hiding, okay. hiding in plain sight, kind of. Yeah, like you don't, there's not the same maybe like cynicism or questioning of like, oh, is this actually truthful? Where's the trick? And so forth. And even I think, okay, we've spoken a lot about this sense of grooming in the voice, the kind of switch in the voice, the guidance, the calming nature, also the undertone made by Marquetta, mm-hmm. all of those things. But I think by sheer virtue of us also, let's say, housing it in an online space, showing it through this radio show, which is all about fiction, it's almost like, yeah, it reveals itself as a space to talk about all of these things rather than the trickery, which is often like the media that we're surrounded by today. Like if someone maybe just tunes in and just hears the piece and then goes off, maybe it's like, okay. But I guess I'm wondering... In terms of, I wonder how they'll process what they're listening to, if it's on its own without any context in terms of, without maybe knowing any German or like knowing the title or, you know, these all these types of questions. I guess it's more of like a statement than a question, but thinking about how this relates to that post-truth in the way in which it reveals itself as being post-truth and the way in which you talk about what that means in this work. If it's more of a signifier of it than a moments to think about well yeah i think there's something pretty meta about it because it's like a a, a meditation kind of already it depends on it depends on who you're talking to here i'm gonna i'm gonna just say it but like i would say meditation takes you to like a semi-fictional space i don't want to say it's not real but it takes you to somewhere that's like outside of your body and then so to Mm. kind of do to have this meditation to kind of have like a fictional simulated meditation it's like is this meditation taking you to a real fictional space or a fictional fictional space right i'm with you now <laughs> so it's yes. all, yeah, yeah. I think it's like maybe this is slightly confusing but where, yeah where thank on the you for <laughs> yeah 
hey, maybe the answer to that question really depends on who you are yeah. as a listener, where you position yourself in in relation to the the terror of extinction. Um, that I I'm gonna say all of us are registering, uh, either consciously or not. You know, there's this whole growing field of psychotherapy called eco-psychotherapy which does engage with the notion of this sort of terror that we are all feeling you know you could say even geotraumatically as extensions of the, the sort of planetary surface the planet the, the planetary body and yeah maybe how real real or fictional real or fictional fictional the work <laughs> feels it is going to it's going to latch on to the world of associations that you have um when you're thinking about well mass suicide which you could also think about as being a, an extinction event um but you know again just different scales of it maybe that's the best response i can give to that question you mentioned terror We've spoken before about your interest in sort of terror and horror and how this this work is a piece of horror for you. But how do you define the or the, basically how you're interested in the distinction between horror and terror? And I was wondering whether you could just sort of open that up a little. Yeah, happily. To my mind, horror is the sort of present visceral embodied experience of abject brutality whereas terror is the apprehension of horror to come. It can exist much more as a sort of virtual, speculative and ominous presence in our minds, in our psyches. And I sort of, I've been thinking about this a lot, actually part of like a reading group at the moment, discussing a text um, that was written by an occult collective in Italy called the Gruppo di Nun. They write about um, this sort of notion of like a Gothic insurrection which utilizes horror, terror, but also sort of chaos um, as magical welding tools that can allow us to sort of like cultivate an active extinctionist praxis or practice in the face of all of the sort of civilizational decay um, that is upon us, if you like. And uh, some of this is my own interpretation based on what they're writing because their writing is super dense, but it's like engaging with the sort of Un uncensored, if you like, like abjectness of our present conditions and, and leaning in. It's not a nihilistic thing. Mm -hmm. It's rather sort of like a realistic acceptance of this sort of profound systemic change and collapse that will affect all infrastructures and orders around us and sort of using that as a departure point for meaning making in spite of what will be an end to something. And in a way, it sort of converts the anxiety piece of extinction anxiety into a sort of thrill or excitement, which is not to be confused with um, indulgence or uh, reveling in the gratuity and the excess of what's, you know, a, a very gothic reality, I think, increasingly. And I think it could be like an affirmation of the life that it demands of us to use as fuel to sort of shape the form that some of these endings or, or transformations are going to take place. There's something about leaning into horror that really embraces like different shades of darkness beyond this mere binary polarity of light versus darkness. There's something that's quite... I can't pin this down, but there's something quite queer about it. And I think, you know, a lot of my work tries to lean into different ways of turning through and uh, curling around, uh, making knots or, or spirals out of um, a, a reality that seems to be merely one thing or the other. And again, it's kind of like, it's like my notion of reality as well. Yeah, within all that, you know, this horror piece as a work of horror, it's, it's a sort of provocation about one particular way that reality could be, uh, rather than something that's hyperstitional. It's not something that I'm actually trying to manifest, per se. Well, I think we're going to have to finish there. Uh, thank you so much, B, for joining us. You're welcome. Um, this, has been a, this has been a really great conversation. Th thank you again to The Couch, which is uh, Hethem's online program. This is the first of three conversations we're going, we're going to be having with artists about around magic and technology within their practice. Uh, the next episode will be with Jan Berger and the third episode will be with Damien Roach. 
they'll be coming in the next while. Thank you so much for listening and thank you, B. It was really, really great to have you on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, thank both. You. Thank you. Bye.